0: Hello, and welcome to the Equity Foundation podcast. The Equity Foundation is the professional development arm of Actors Equity. Our mission is to assist, educate, and inspire performers. To find out more, visit www.equityfoundation.org.au. Thank you, Mary. And before we lose Eamon to an unstable chair, just change that over. Good. So, so hard to get good furniture, isn't it? (laughs) All right. Well, thanks everyone for coming along tonight. It's great to see so many young faces who are interested in uh, asking questions and being active in their artistic community. Um, Before I start with the questions, I just wanted to give you a brief overview of Kip, Lee, and Amon's backgrounds. Uh, I'm sure you've already there, read their biogs on the Equity Foundation website. There'll be a short uh, quiz afterwards <laughs> <laughs> and you'll be off Equity's list if you don't know the answers. Um, but in the interest of brevity I'll keep it short. Kip, Williams Williams here is the recently appointed Artistic Director of the Sydney Theatre Company. His previous credits include working with the Sydney Chamber Opera, Melbourne Theatre Company, Malthouse, Tamarama Rock Surfers, Sydney Writers Festival, the Biennale of Sydney, the Sydney Chamber Opera and also the Princeton Theatre in New Jersey. He was appointed Artistic Director of the STC in 2016. Next to him we have Lee Lewis who is the Artistic Director of Griffin Theatre Company. Lee's previous credits include working for Bell Shakespeare, Melbourne Theatre Company, Sydney Theatre Company, as well as productions for the Darwin Festival, NIDA and WAPA. And she was appointed Artistic Director for Griffin in 2013. And next to Eamon, next to Lee is Eamon, next to Eamon is me. Next to Lee is Eamon, who is Belvoir's artistic director. Thank you for having us. Uh, He trained as an actor at WAPA from 2001 to 2003, and has since worked as a director, actor, writer, and dramaturg. What a show off. <laughs> His credits include co-adapting Ruby, Langford Guineby's memoir, Don't Take Your Love to Town with Leah Purcell. His dramaturgy credits for Belvoir include Neighbourhood Watch, The Wild Duck, Brothers Wreck and The Book of Everything. His adaptations include Chekhov's Ivanov, Gorky's Summerfolk and Sophocles' Antigone. He was appointed artistic director for Belvoir in 2016. Please give him a warm welcome. So that might be quite a good place to kick off, I think. Eamon, you started in 2016, which meant you would have programmed 2017. What was it like programming your first season?
1: I... Uh, it, oh, God. This is... A, so t- what year is it now? This is 2017? Yes. OK, so I programmed 2016 16. as well, so this is actually my oh, second. But you did too. But, um, but I had been here... At, so my first season here as artistic director was actually my tenth season at the company programming. So it was simultaneously completely familiar, and at the same time, um, all the clarity I had ever had okay. in the nine previous years <laughs> went... You know, like. You know when f- on old projectors, when the film would just go like that? That's what it was like. I lost it. Um, what was your
0: position previously? Was it artistic associate? or I had been
1: associate director dash new projects, I think. That was my <laughs> official title. And b- prior to that, I'd been as artistic associate to Neil Armfield and prior to that I had been the the literary manager. Not not a terribly good one I don't think.
0: (laughs) They seem to have survived. Do you think that any of those jobs could be called a kind of uh, artistic director internship or because you don't really have assistant ADs as such or how do you learn to be an AD if I I suppose through jobs
1: like that? Yeah sure I I felt like um, I felt not quite ready for the job, but I also felt like I could muddle through <laughs> if I was willful and cunning. And I don't mean to get the job, I mean to do the job. Yeah. And I, But at the same... It's an interesting question, because I had worked for five years under Neil Armfield and five years under Ralph Myers, both of whom were kind of, like, had deep connections in each other's worldviews and in the way that they approached the company, but also both of whom were kind of wildly different in many ways. But I... I there, was a, there were long periods. There were two seven month periods in a row in about 2009, 8, 9, or something, when Neil was away for the whole time. And so it just meant that I had to um, step up in, in ways that, um, that uh, were interesting and um, challenging and useful. And so after 10 years of working under two artistic directors, I felt like I was at least like qualified in a middling way.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Humble. Um, Kip, I'm just gonna get the elephant in the room over and done with. You were appointed just last November after Jonathan Church and the STC consciously uncoupled. (laughs) Does that mean that the 2017 season was programmed by him or did you have some input into that or are you just overseeing his? his program.
2: So, so the 2017 season is, is largely Jonathan's. He yep. left with about 50% of it firmly in place locked in and then the other 50% in, in a loose shape um, and then myself and the artistic team which includes um, our producing team, our literary manager um, and the resident directors uh, went about shaping the rest of the 50% and as I'm sure that we can all attest to when you're programming a season things shift right up until mm-hmm. the moment where you're sending the, the program <laughs> off to print and sometimes after you've sent it off to print. Um, so that 50% shifted quite a bit, but was still very much in the vein of the, the vision that he had for, for 2017. So, and I wasn't actually appointed interim artistic director, I think, until after that had been locked off or pretty close to. Right. Um, and then I wasn't appointed artistic director uh, until a couple of weeks before we launched. So whilst I've I've launched it and been a kind of public advocate for it, um, it's it's Jonathan's, um, largely uh, combined with this input from the artistic team. Uh, And and I think the interesting thing, particularly for new artistic directors, which I'm sure Eamon can attest to, although you've been inside Belvoir, so it's slightly different. um, But any artistic director steps into a company with a a whole host of of projects at various levels of of, Mm. um, crookedness. and uh, in that sense, you know, there are commissions that are still from Kate and Andrew's time, from Andrew's time. Right. Uh, and, you know, I'll, I have commissions um, in the company at the moment from Jonathan's time. You know, when I leave, the next artistic director will have commissions from me still at play inside the company. So there is a, particularly given that we do 15, 16 shows a year, there's a, there's a momentum inside the company that, that uh, is, is beyond the artistic director within a 12-month period. Um, so in putting together 2018, having come from the inside, there's stuff that I can pick up on and have a facility with, but there'll be a presence of Jonathan inside the company for a couple of years to come.
0: Yeah, which is healthy in a way, isn't it? To have not just one sort of megalomaniacal vision for every season for that entire tenure, to have input from other people and inf- input sort of ongoing. Yeah. And it becomes a kind of melange. That's um, Lee. Hello. Hello. You've been the Artistic Director for Griffin for a few years now. How do you feel now in comparison to when you started?
3: Well, the first year I had to figure out how to use a desk (laughs) because it was the first time I was required to be at that piece of property regularly. And in the second year, uh, we had a complete renewal of the board, so I figured out what a board was. (laughs) And then uh, the third year, became all about government because of the funding changes. So I started to figure out what government ministers were. And then they kept changing them. So now I've realized (laughs) that, actually, I have to know all the ministers. And that's part of the the interesting larger conversation is what's been happening to the arts in the last four years because of rapid and radical changes, both in federal and state government. So it's been a really massively steep learning curve. and I, I don't see that stopping anytime soon. So it's
0: like the rug keeps getting pulled oh, yeah, from yeah. every <laughs> time. You're probably getting more confident with your programming but everything else is changing around it. Yeah, but, but it's all new plays. So well, yeah. it, it's, uh, there's no confidence
3: to be had in programming <laughs> when it's all new plays because it's really dependent on what playwrights write. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and it, writing that over a course of years, there are plays that come in where you go, oh my God, yes, now. And then there are plays that are coming in that, that started as conversations eight years ago. So mm. you just... Have no idea what's going to walk in the door.
0: For those of you that don't know, Griffin um, only programs new Australian work. Um, yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 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 yes! All right, everybody. Was it a long standing ambition to be artistic director of a theatre company? Amen.
1: Um, not, not for a long time, not until kind of recently, <clears throat> in a way. So not long-standing, no. I had hoped when I was uh, about a year or so out, maybe two years out of drama school, I kind of went, maybe one day when I'm in my mid-40s, I'd quite like to be an associate director of a theatre company.
0: Right.
1: <laughs> and I still think that would be quite nice. <laughs> um Nice. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so no, it wasn't long-standing, but it was about... Um, When when Neil left, I didn't want to take the job, and I was thrilled when Ralph came on board because of the um, enormous respect that I had for him. But um, but certainly when Ralph said he was going, by then I was like a
0: bit less respect for
1: Ralph. No, (laughs) 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 No, but by then I did feel like I wanted to. But actually, it was not necessarily of a major company. I had other ideas. Okay. Yeah.
0: Lee. Was it a long-standing ambition? Yes. From the cradle? (laughs) From about 12. Amazing. Oh, really? Mm. Amazing. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Good chat.
1: I wanted to be an astronaut when I was 12.
3: No, no, I shut down all the other possibilities when I was 12 and I explained to my father what my career path would be, that it would not oh. include neurosurgery or law. Yeah. And I laid out a plan and I said if, I, if it wasn't working by the time I was 35, I still had time to change and get into another industry. Wow. And I, was, I had a bit of a minor breakdown when I was about 36 because my 12-year-old self had not prepared me for <laughs> the, t- the time beyond 35. But I've, I've forgiven her now. Yeah. <laughs> it's OK.
2: <laughs> What, what, how, did, how did you know, or what, what made you think of that when you were twelve?
3: I was way smarter when I was twelve. <laughs> did you see a particular oh show
0: at a particular theatre? That how did
3: know, you even know I'm,
0: about artistic direction when you were twelve?
3: I think I'm, I think my parents used to bring me actually to Belvoir, and I remember seeing Neil Armfield talking about something, and I thought I'm going to do what you do. Oh, yeah. mm. I, I want to lead the conversation. Yeah. Um, and then I took a whole lot of other paths and it, it, it sort of didn't sit at the front of my head uh, because other things are really exciting. I trained as an actor, I worked as an actor for a really long time, then I became more of a director and then so it, I wasn't seeking it but yes. Okay. But Keep.
2: No, I don't think so. I mean, um, it's interesting hearing you talk about that age uh, and having that relationship but having a bit more of a self-awareness than I did. I, I started my first theatre company when I was 11. Um, so <laughs> my friends and I got together and, and um, I won't tell you what we were going to produce because it's really embarrassing. I want to know,
0: what was your first <laughs> maybe for season? The,
2: maybe for the, for the bar afterwards. Uh-huh. Um, but, but no sense of, of even being a director then. Yeah. Um, and and I think, but were you directing it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So Completely. you were doing it. Yeah. I didn't even really know what a director was <laughs> at all.
3: Yeah, but uh, I was doing the same thing. You just told people what to do, yeah, <laughs> yeah you, and you and you organized yeah. it, and you stole yeah. all the stuff from your house to do it. Totally, stand yeah. there, do it angry. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, and don't tell my mother we're using X. <laughs> yeah,
2: Comple- very similar. <laughs> yeah, um, but I, I don't uh, I don't think I thought about it. Um, with a, as a kind of conscious goal and I certainly would never imagined that I would be doing it at, at this point in my life. Um, but uh, it's sort of been a strange path to, to, to being in the job at STC at this point in my life and it felt very right as it, as it happened. Um, so, every, t- every time a next step took me towards doing something like that, there was a lot of consideration about whether that was the, the thing I wanted to do and, mm. and it always came back with something that I really wanted to do and so I just yep. kept pursuing it.
0: Good. Um, what is your vision for mm. the company and do you feel there is an existing mission inherent in your company that you need to uphold, Lee?
3: Yeah, of course there's an existing, I have the, the kind of easiest company in the country because the mission is not dependent on the artistic director. Yes. New Australian plays, really straightforward. Has always been, will always be, and I think that's incredibly important both for writers and actors to trust that always. It will never be questioned. What those plays are and how that's delivered and what a, what is new, what is Australian and what is a play are all up for grabs, <laughs> but it will be that combination always. So. Uh, so that's easy on some level. Uh, the sustainability of that and the constant convincing of government that we are not losing money, they are investing yeah. in the future of, of, of the Australian voice, and that that investment has to keep going uh, is the big question. Like, how long can that keep going? Yeah. Uh, and it comes back to that thing of 20 years from now, if, if, you had, if, you just have, if you can only choose one company in the country to fund, which company gets that funding? And well, us? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. First, like if a you to, fight, cut away everything. <laughs> if cut away stage. everything, that becomes the thing, <laughs> and that becomes a question. I think that we have to, we have to lead government in rather than be forced into a corner mm. in answering it. Mm. We actually have uh, the value, uh, the values of our artistic community are really important. If uh, us knowing collectively what we value the most is what we will champion the most and continue to, because it will come to that. It will come to the point where there is no more government funding, and so how are we building towards that? And if that, if if we don't want that, then why are we fighting for it? So, so that's the big question for the next 20 years.
0: Thank you, Kip. Do you have a vision for STC? Do you feel like there's one that you need to uphold that's already in the works of the building, yeah, in the pylons?
2: Yes, and and I just want to sort of start by picking up on something that Lee's just said. I mean, I think. Theatre has a, a tough time with government in, in, in uh, making a case that they can fully comprehend as to why it's a valuable art form. Um, in that you look at something like opera or classical music and, or, or even dance and there's a, a more of a um, kind of quantifiable understanding in, in those people who aren't involved in the arts' minds as to why those art forms are valuable. They can kind of see, See the work, whereas with with our art form, which is a, which, which is a bit more ratty, um, which is it, which is a bit more uh, provocative towards government, um, it, it becomes harder, uh, and uh, you know it's it's less of a high art form perhaps as some other art forms appear to be. Um, I mean, I think it's a high art form. Uh, yeah. I think we all think it's a high art form.
0: Depends on the production.
2: Uh, depends on the production. <laughs> um, so, so I think, I think uh, being able to make a case for theatre is, is always a challenge for us. Um, and I think the challenge that I have running a company like Sydney Theatre Company is, is its name more than anything else. Uh, because the vision for Sydney Theatre Company always has to live up to that name. And that, that, the fact that it is Sydney's theatre company and the question becomes, what is, what is Sydney? Which is an almost unanswerable question. Uh, but one that myself and my team have to grapple with. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that sense, uh, particularly in, in my time, I think there are some things that we could be doing better than we have in the past. And a lot of that is about who the artists are that we're bringing into the building and the type of opportunities that we're giving them. Um, you know, given that we're the biggest theatre company in this city. There's a sense so in which, the country. Well, in the country, yeah, um, that that uh, we uh, that part of our vision or our responsibility or the, the mission of the company is to um, build upon the work that the small to medium companies are doing, um, and even the majors like Belvoir, um, and to absorb the, the great great things that those companies do and use our scale to to take them to the next step. Um, but you know, with this question of what is Sydney for us with a a season of 16 plays, you're wanting to cater to a lot of different audience types. Um, And so for me, my particular vision for the company is about um, broadening, diversifying uh, the stories that we're telling and and the artists who are are telling those stories, Mm -hmm. particularly particularly given that the company has an opportunity to make certain works that other companies can't make given the scale that we have.
0: Thank you. Eamon, you got a mission
1: up your Uh, (coughs) Uh, sleeve? Mission? I don't know. Look, um,. I definitely, when, when you first asked the question, you said, do I, is there a sense of duty to the history of the company? And I think here there very much is. Yeah. And that's largely because this room has been this room for, um, you know, for, since 1972, really. And it was made by hand, do you know what I mean, by yeah. artists, this space. And no matter how much this set changes, those are the walls, they're the walls, on the other side of that wall is the street. So this <laughs> book just keeps on unfolding, it is what it is. And there, there's, you know, in that paint on those walls, there's a lot of um, horrific theatre. And there's, you know, <laughs> there's greatness in there as well. But also because the, you know, the particular history of this company was so um, uh, glorious and unusual. And, um, and it, it, um, there's definitely a, a sense of responsibility about yeah. that. This company was a product of real ideals. And so I don't have a vision or a mission because I'm not quite cogent in that way. I'm not, I don't think like that. I can't. I fail at it. But I do have a strong instinct, and it's an instinct that comes of having been here for a long time. But it's also an instinct that is built around listening very closely to the anxieties of artists and of audiences and thinking a lot about what theatre in particular can do in response to... Um, the times we live in and what this particular company can do. And this particular company is simultaneously a big company and a small company. And I think that means that our job is to somehow or other always be, I mean in the past there's a a uh, like, um, phrase that I've used that is just meant to titillate donors, but I talk about this company being a sort of cat flap into the national culture, that it's a sort of back door into things, that we smuggle things into the kind of cultural centre, into the centres of power. And that's, that's my sense of what the, the company is about. So, in practical terms... Um, ..lots of Australian stories, stories that aren't being told, people who don't have a voice, making sure that we continue to be a great home for actors and the craft of acting and making sure that we continue to be a great storytelling place for First Nations stories and artists.
0: That sounds pretty good. <laughs> um, right, next, okay.
3: <laughs> That's interesting though because there's a, there's a real connection between the three primary new play spaces between Griffin and this space and Wolf One. Well, very mm. literally, they're all literally. modelled on, your, on all, your space. All the yeah. same architect, all <laughs> the same, let's find a space. Let's find a really stupid space that should never be a theatre, that mm. no one else wants, and make a theatre out of it. And they were all made by the artists of the time. Mm. Mm. So it was about going, oh, it doesn't matter that there isn't a fly tower. It doesn't matter that there isn't this. We're just going to make it. And people are going to sit in a slightly awkward configuration and come and look at those stories. Mm. And And that's still the connective material between all of them so even though the resources are so different across the three companies I think there's an extraordinary conversation that happens with the Sydney audience and has happened over the last 50 years to to make a theatre type that doesn't exist in the rest of the world Mm. Uh, you know it's really interesting talking to English dramaturg friends who go who don't really like Australian plays because they're kind of messy. <laughs> and I go, yeah, they're not messy, you just don't know how to read them. Mm-hmm. And our audiences do. We are making plays now that don't necessarily travel well to other places mm-hmm. because we make them for us, for this Sydney sensibility. Yeah. And I think that's kind of fascinating. I think there's a beautiful DNA connection between those <gasps> three spaces mm. that the audience feels, even, even as we fight it as artists, we try to do more in all of those spaces, but I think, there's, there, I think that the audience ownership of these spaces is quite extraordinary.
2: So, <laughs> it's so interesting on that that a lot of that feeds into the kind of formal language of the way we make theatre in this city. And even at STC, um, when we're in our biggest space in the Ros Packer Theatre, so often the theatre makers choose to acknowledge the theatre space. And, and let the audience be aware that the act of theatre making is taking place. And that goes right back to Griffin through Belvoir, through Wharf One. That you
3: can't ignore the space, yeah. so you have to deal
2: you with de- it. You declare But that's quite the story a
3: radical term. design thought when you go and you travel overseas and you look at the stuff on West End and Broadway. They deny the real architecture all the time and they build and build and build and then we just don't do that. Mm. I mean, one of my favourite memories is watching an English friend watch Angels in America, the beginning of the second half and everybody was kind of exhausted and, um, and you know, Paul, I came out and put, the, someone put the, the ladder there and I, uh, my memories weird. Someone sprayed some, f- some oh, yeah. smoke across <laughs> and, you know, and then, then the lights went out and then she jumped up on the ladder in the dark and then the, then the grand beginning happened. And I was like, you have to do that here. But this English friend was horrified. (laughs) It was the worst production of Angels in America he'd ever seen. And I go, oh, come on, that was amazing. I was sitting over there and I was watching him over there. And he was genuinely confused by how much the audience was loving it. Because he was watching the worst production he'd ever seen. But the audience is going, oh, my God. And, of course, there's this extraordinary connection between the audience here and that extraordinary cast and the roughness of the making. Mm. But this way of making would not have worked on Any major stage in America or or England, and you go, and nor should it. We're making it for here, and I think there's something magic there, and I think there's something magic moving between the spaces. Thank you. Yeah. Sorry. Totally. No,
0: that's 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 great. Um, I'd like to talk a bit about about programming your seasons and how you uh, program your plays for each year. Do you have an overriding? theme for the year? Uh, Do you have a really clear idea of what you want or does it tend to reveal itself like a jigsaw puzzle as you go along? Kip?
2: Oh, that's so unfair. (laughs) I've never done it
1: before. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) (laughs) You, it's a little bit like, um, like it's a little bit like um, I don't surf, but I body surf, and you can't do anything unless the wave comes along. Yep. So you're kind of like out there. Do you know what I mean? Like. And it, sometimes that means you kind of like shove people out of the way, or you move along to get the fuck out of the way of the people that are there. But but you but unless the, but you can't you've, you've only got what's actually there to and work with. Shark, hey hey. Yeah. You can't well that happens. <laughs> you can't dream up the waves, and it's the same with a piece the pieces of theatre. Actually, got it. You've got to work with what's actually there. So that sometimes means. Are you misbehaving? <laughs>
3: thinking, I'm so sorry. I was just thinking of you in the waves and I was like, the, and then, yeah, sorry. So sorry.
2: <laughs> Back the to the waves. My metaphor's been ruined. Oh. That's beautiful. <laughs>
1: It's the shark true. is really when the, is when the show falls over. It's a really over. good
0: one. That's how it's getting into it because there's she <laughs> was a yeah. porpoise behind you on the wave. Yeah. Yeah. There's stuff that happens.
2: I think I think I would add to that in saying that it's it's you know because the wave is partly the artists and the work they're <laughs> totally. doing too, and then it's also you know that um, nasty word zeitgeist of, of responding to to what's in the ether, and and you you know I mean all of us make work um, politically. Yeah. We we make work just to, to speak. And and you want to speak to your audience. Mm. It's the great privilege of being a, of being a theatre maker, and particularly being an artistic director, because it's an en masse opportunity to really ask people to think about certain ideas. And so you're responding to what's happening mm. in the world around you, and and there's a, a synthesis, a, a overlaps, um, intersections of ideas with works and.
1: And, and really if the, when the wave comes, it's a special thing. There are definitely plays that, that um, have to happen at a particular point in time. Yeah. There's a play I've loved for a long time that i wanted to do that I could have done two or three years ago, but not now, I don't think. Right. So, so that inevitably happens. Part of it is letting go of the things you always thought you wanted to do <laughs> when you kind of realise that, that they're not really the point right now.
0: Yeah. And it might but come also, back again in,
3: yeah. in
1: years to come. And then there are ones
0: just, that just sit in
3: the back of your head and they're you know, just waiting yeah. for a time where it can just slip in in the right way. Yeah. But
1: the, I think the first big question for me is what have we got, what, what is the new work that we've got that's boiling along and, and y- there's always a point where you kind of have to go, I just don't think that, we can, that we're going to get that there, so let's like really ramp up on those couple mm. and we've got, you know, six weeks, eight weeks, maybe two or three weeks to get to a certain point where we know that that's what we've got and there's the new work. Yeah. and there's two or three or four. I mean, I, like, this year we've got seven or eight Australian works in the season, do you know what I mean? Like, so that's the, that's the beginning. And then there's kind of, like, a breakdown. You know that, you, you know that on this stage you want to keep certain classics alive in new ways. Um, there's certain actors that you're going to talk to, and depending on how they respond, I f- found... Like, I'm doing Ghosts next year because Pam Rabe and I were remounting Menagerie, and we were walking back from the theatre one night, and we both said, hey, what about Ghosts? Mm. And actually, you know, Pam said it first, and I had been thinking about it for someone else. So that's how that happened. So, so there's a certain amount of accident to it. That poor actress you were thinking about it for? <laughs> Another director. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's always the um, the 11th hour emergency stuff, you stuff know, which. falls over. Yeah. yeah. Wild yeah. Duck was after the deadline, for example. Right. Yep. Yeah. Um, Faith Healer, which just, you know, cleaned up the city theatre awards, that was. Uh, Post deadline piece of programming, okay yep
0: who do you work with uh, when you're you 're uh, programming?
1: I've got a wonderful department called the Artistic and Programming Department, which I've been a part of for a very long time, and uh, that includes uh, like a sort of roving group of people at the moment. Tom Wright is here part time as an associate artist. Um, Anthea Williams is in charge of new work at the company and has been for five or six years now. Uh, Neil Rowney is part-time here as an, uh, an artistic associate. Um, uh, Brenna Hobson, who is our executive director, like, we work very closely talking about what's achievable, Mm -hmm. um, because I have to constantly accept that there are limits. Of course. (laughs) To things. Um, uh, There has been an associate producer. We've just just appointed someone new, Charlotte Bradley, in that position. Mm -hmm. So there's a real group of people. And then there's kind of like people from the outside as well, who come into the process in different ways.
0: Lee, who do you work with when you're programming?
3: Due to the funding cuts, I lost my artistic associate. Just you then? Yeah, just me. Um, <laughs> yep. Good uh, chats with yourself across yeah, the desk. Great chats with myself. Mirror. There. That's not fair. No. I, talk to, I talk a lot to Karen Rogers, uh, general manager, and uh, I work a lot with the playwrights, yeah. honestly, talking to, uh, to them about where they're at, and I try to keep it as transparent as possible, even to the point of saying, you know, saying it's sitting on the table, I don't know if it's going to end up in the in the season so that they're part of that other than it's this mysterious thing and they just get this random phone call Uh, and Mm. yeah everybody's sort of got their own way of doing stuff and I worked for well I was uh, around you know it was Richard Barrett Fellow for Robin Nevin for a year so I was around her as she was programming then I was Nick Marchant for mm-hmm. a while and then Sam Strong and and none of them are the same yeah. <laughs> and I, it's there it is a mysterious process there's also that because you're reading stuff and it's it, I think of myself as the first audience for an idea okay. and if something I respond to something then I hope that that means that other people in an audience w- will respond to it mm-hmm. so I think but I'm also conscious. I remember Robin talking about being on the wharf and getting further and further shut off from regular people. So worrying that on a programming level she was losing touch with what people wanted to see. That that was something she was vigilant about, was staying in touch with the world. So, yeah, I, it's I talk to I talk surreptitiously to a lot of people about the stories that playwrights are working on to see if. If I start talking about a story, then if someone, if, if people around the dinner table pick it up and start talking about it, then I kind of go, OK, there's a bit of heat there. Yeah. So it's sort of, I don't talk about the stories as such as the issues sitting yeah, inside yeah. it to see what people are thinking. And if, and if I think that there are words in those plays that, that uh, will offer something to those people that are talking about it, putting it in a, in a way that it can't be said by regular people, Sure. Um, so I'm fishing. I suppose I fish <laughs> with regular
1: people a lot. Great. No, you're not fishing while I'm trying to catch waves because... <laughs> <laughs> of
0: you. you win! That's awesome! Yeah, <laughs> thank no, you. It is mysterious. serious. <laughs> Kip, you've got a team, you've got Polly Rowe is a, your
1: literary... Yeah, Polly Rowe, our
2: literary manager, My um, resident uh, director, Mara Savage, mm-hmm. Richard Werrick Fellow, Jess Arthur. Um, uh, Director of Programming, Rachel party, Executive Director, Patrick McIntyre, Head of Casting, Serena Hill. Yep. Um, and with all of those different skills bases, it feeds in a different perspective on the ideas. Um, and I think the other thing that which we all three of us do is, is get out and talk to the artists yeah. and uh, have a really open ear to, to, to what you other. want to do.
3: I think that's what yeah. people don't realise is that we pick up the phone and say, hey, how, do you know about this writer or this artist and what they're thinking? Yeah. I can't do it you should have a look yeah and yeah there's that conversation that happens as well which
0: is really healthy Then you obviously don't want me pro- programming the same show well, yeah in like, the same I always yeah, pick up the phone sorry. and say to, say to Eamon hey
3: <laughs> are you doing a re- when you do your yeah. revival of something when in the year yeah, will it yeah. be and would it be congruent with this because again you don't we're sort of programming for Sydney yeah and you don't want to be clustering the, I guess, mm. the, wrong, the wrong ideas, the wrong experiences.
0: But it doesn't to it. serve anyone yeah. to, to be in competition, yeah. does it? no. Um, okay, this is um, how do, probably not really pertinent to you, Lee, but Eamon and Kip, how do you balance your need to support Australian playwrights with programming international plays? Can I start with you, Kip?
2: Yeah, sure. Well, we, we, we haven't done a huge amount of um, new and in international writing at SEC in the past few years. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in rehearsals for Chimerica at the moment, which is Lucy Kirkwood play, which is um, a, a bit different for us to be doing that. Um, and we'll see under my time as to how much we do. I mean, in the, in the past there's been a bit of a, th- a third, third, third approach of new international work, new Australian work, um, classic work. Uh, and we've been looking at Reinvestigating the Australian canon in our time, trying mm-hmm. to do at least one play a year from the Australian canon. Uh, but in terms of new Australian work, ag- again, from, and in particular in terms of my time in the company, a lot of it is uh, is down to the ability for us to try and give writers an opportunity to you know, having written for the Griffin, having written for Belvoir to write for a a bigger space Mm -hmm. um, and offer a different type of dreaming for them, um, be that car size or uh, a theatrical language that they're interested in exploring that they might be able to do in the drama theatre or in the Raws that they, that that is perhaps not possible uh, elsewhere in Sydney for them. I don't know what you're talking about. And
0: in fact, S C C has taken a Griffin show, The Bleeding Tree, That's which right. is which is yeah. programmed for later this year, isn't
2: it? Yeah, As we, so we have a history in the company of also taking work, often oh. from Griffin, and and casting it out into a wider because Away happened. Hmm. Away, like Kafka, like Kafka Dancers was the same thing with Griffin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think in terms of. In terms of new Australian writing, um, we also go right down to you know, the f- kind of first base level of um, often programming writers for the, uh, on our main stages with their first play. Mm. Um, so Disipon Svetsala, or, or Oki as some of you may know him, has his play Australian Graffiti with us this year. It's his first play he's ever written. <laughs> um, Kylie Coolwell wrote her first play uh, for us at the Battle of Waterloo. Um, so sometimes there's a kind of complete flip of taking very new writers and giving them their first opportunity. Um, and I think all companies, irrespective of scale, are interested in, in you know, new voices. Yeah. Um, so it's not just our kind of remit to be, be looking at the kind of mid, mid-career, later career writers. We're interested in new writers too.
0: OK. And Lee, where do you find your Aussie playwrights? Are you in cahoots with the festivals? Do you have a breeding program? How do you...? Where do get them? Um, everybody's got my
3: email address, and everybody's got my phone number, and they call and they send the plays. Right. And I go out and see as much as I can. Uh, and I've got, again, really good conversations with the artistic directors of the different state theatre companies yeah. around the country, uh, so that I'm not picking up writers that they're working on before they're ready. Because Sydney's a high-pressure, uh, market or environment yeah. to put a, a new work on in and sometimes, uh, sometimes working with the state theatre companies outside of, outside of New South Wales is actually a really good pathway uh, and the writers come into Sydney with a lot more confidence if they've built, if they've had successful productions outside, outside the state. So it's a lot of talking about yep. uh, and staying in touch with where the writers are to see if it's the right time for them and the play. Because sometimes sometimes, the, sometimes people actually aren't ready for that story to be on. They think they are, but actually they're not ready to lead the conversation. And I really think the playwrights have to be the ones leading it. <laughs> uh, if it's their story, they know what they want to say and they have to be ahead of it rather than chasing behind it and just grateful for it to be on. What's the point of that?
0: Yeah. OK. I've got a, I'm, I'm aware of time and we've got a, a couple of hot button issues that I know our membership wanted to, um, to discuss today so I'm going to jump into those and if we've got time for my other questions at the end we'll go into those but um, I wanted to talk about diversity and colourblind and cross gender casting uh, which has been around for a while this, this issue but it finally appears to have become a mainstream issue. Um, do you think that recent changes in diverse casting are real changes or token ones? Is there a real cultural shift at the moment Eamon?
1: it 's a, it's a good question to ask how deep seated it is and <laughs> real it is, because there 's no doubt that that the the concerted effort of a lot of artists has put the pressure on companies to pay a lot more attention, and I think that 's a very good thing and it, it does mean i mean it means that for example, in every programming meeting, we do actually count now and um, That's a useful tool.
0: Do you have a quota, or do you just have a general kind of? Does that look balanced? No, no,
1: I mean certainly for gender, we have what is effectively a quota. Yeah. But um, uh, but it's an interesting question about how kind of like real and permanent it's going to be because like the last time that the issue of women in theatre blew up at at this particular company about six years ago, there was a lot of discussion about how that was a founding principle of this company and why were we, you know, here where we were thirty years later coming, you know, talking about the same old things. Mm. So, I don't... I mean, it's going to be a long-term thing, but I do feel like the commitment is um, serious on behalf of behalf of the organisations. Yeah. And I think that there's a pretty good understanding that a real commitment is a very big and deep commitment mm. and that it's going to require changing the organisations and changing the culture and changing the processes and that it's not just a matter of kind of... Um, feeling satisfied with the surface level of things. So, I mean, I would like to think that it will be permanent, and I would like to think that the work that is being done and the conversations that are happening are laying the groundwork for it to be permanent.
0: Um, Kip. I know that you did an all-female production of Lord of the Flies once at Malthouse. What are your feelings about cross-gender casting, which is becoming more common as well now? Kate Mulvaney is about to play Richard III for Belle, for instance. Um, given that there are so many productions that have a majority of male roles, um, how open are you to turning male roles into female roles so there's equity in the casts? Do you think that Lord of the Flies was a successful um, experiment?
2: Well, if I can say so, yes, <laughs> <laughs> I Old do. All aside, <laughs> exactly. you've done
3: an all-male production of it as yeah, well. Yeah, the genesis yeah. of
2: the production was I'd, I'd done an all-male production, in my final production at, at NIDA, and I had wanted to do an all-female production and had been told that I wasn't allowed to. Um, and, and part of that was practical. There weren't enough women in the year to be able to cast nine female roles, which was not good and um, since changed Sorry. inside
3: yeah.
2: that institution, which is a very good thing. So, so I wanted to make that production, and and we made it, and it was a very rewarding one. Um, You know, cross uh, gender blind casting is something that's been inside my work um, often. Mm. Um, You know, Paul Arundel um, is coming up a lot on this stage. uh, Was my Banquo in my Scottish play, and Kate Box was the Macduff in that play. Um, So it's something for me that uh, is sort of twofold. There's a principal basis of it to do with. Um, equity yep. um, and to do with giving opportunities to great female actors to, to play these fantastic roles. Um, and then there's my own artistic uh, investigation in the work and, and I'm interested in gender and I'm interested in the gender politics of the plays that I, that I explore. Um, and it's a way to have a conversation with the audience. Um, however big or small, I mean obviously Lord of the Flies was a very pointed conversation with that audience to do with, to do with violence. Yep. Um, and in the Scottish play it was slightly more uh, subtle than that. Um was a particular moment in in that play where um, Macduff has just discovered that the king has been murdered um, and Macduff comes into the, to the hall and Milita's Eurisic, who's playing Lady M, comes in and says, what's happened, what's happened? And Macduff says, I can't, I can't tell you what's happened if I was to tell a woman she would faint. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Banquo comes charging in and says, what's happened? And Macduff immediately tells Banquo. <laughs> and it's the moment we've got the three actresses on stage. So there's a kind of um, a very kind of pointed uh, a conversation to be had with the audience in the, in the gender-blind casting. I, but think I think with it's Shakespeare
1: a... it's kind of like a, a bit of a no-brainer to be honest. Like it's so, whether the play is one of the gender play plays or not, it's sort of like, um, it's so easy to kind of go out of your way to make sure that there's equity in, in I think, in casting Shakespeare. Do
0: you think that's because it's Heightened? Do you think it's because it was written to be performed by all one gender anyway?
1: Well, I think because the language, because not just that, but they're written for daylight and bare stages. So I think that mm. the language tells you everything. Mm. So that I think it's quite simple to do. Like Emele Ugavole can play a man very easily because the text says what the relationships are. It's sort of like in, it, there is no gender in a funny way, I think, yeah. when you really dig into it, oddly enough. But at the same time, there is. There's all this kind of horrific misogyny. So actually, um, the, the play of casting with the text is um, endlessly malleable, I think, mm. with I th- Shakespeare. I, I think, too, in terms of the, the question as to whether
2: it's, um, you know, tokenism or whether it's lasting, um, it really does feel like there's a generational shift at play. Yeah. A, a industry-wide across Australia in, in, in these issues of diversity and equity being genuinely important to people and it's just about vigilance at the end of the day. Unconscious bias will always creep into play and the mm. systems that, that privilege certain people over others will, will take a long, long time to, to unpick. Um, so it's, it's, it's just a constant relentless vigilance mm-hmm. in, in being committed to that. Mm-hmm. and you, you know, I had a great meeting with uh, the associate director at The Bush to talk about uh, th- their season for this year has um, plays written by two-thirds called artists. And, uh, and I said, is this something that you've consciously done or how has this come about? And he said, no, we don't, we don't consciously sit down and say we want to achieve this number. It's important to us and we do the work to ensure that the work reflects our values. Yeah. And the byproduct of that is that we have a season that looks like this. You know, that's the best case scenario, yeah. but it's still a kind of conscious part of the conversation, both in that industry and in that culture and, and th- this industry here. And I think, you know, given that it's a, a genuine thing, it will be reflected genuinely inside the work that is programmed, um, you know, and if we keep talking about it, then generations to come will absorb those values. <coughs>
0: here here. Um, sex and nudity. I'm not going to ask you to take your clothes off yet. Uh, in talking about this issue with younger, equi- uh, younger actors um, equity has noticed how anxious Younger actors, usually female, are about sex and nudity in film and television and I think the anxiety around this is something that has been suppressed for a long time and it feels like younger actors can feel that it's part of the job and there's an obligation and perhaps they don't realise they have choices, they need to sign an agreement to do this, they need to talk to equity or their agent and agree to anything before they sign and this is the same with theatre of course. but it can be hard when you want to please the director, not wanting to be seen as difficult. Um, what can you say to reassure the actors here about this? And what are your processes for handling this, It Depends on the play. Um,
3: and it depends on the actors. Yep. There, isn't a, there isn't a process. Mm. And it depends on what's being mm. asked. Uh, some Some actors are very comfortable with their bodies, and they don 't uh, and they can perform well naked and some people actually perform very badly naked <laughs> and no no, no, I mean that there, there 's a level of of self-consciousness that never goes, that it never goes away. actually goes yeah. away, and you don't want to put someone in that position of feeling like they're performing
0: badly. It doesn't serve the play No, I it, doesn't, it mm. doesn't
3: serve anybody, and the audience can feel it as well. So it depends on what's there. Um, the last... I'm, I'm conscious that it's an enormous ask, and I try to make the playwrights really conscious of what they're asking actors to do for them, uh, and to what end in the play. And I think if the... I think if the point of doing it is is obvious then, then I think the actors become much more able to decide for themselves whether it's worth it in the scheme of their working life. Uh, when I worked on, uh, the, one of the hardest situations I had was on 8 gigabytes of hardcore pornography with uh, Stevie Rogers and Andrea Gibbs because Declan Green, who wrote it, had very specifically asked for overweight actors and at the end of the play they have to strip off and say terrible things about themselves while naked on stage. And it was deeply upsetting for those actors. And that, when we auditioned that was part of the conversation of do you think you can do this and how do you think, what, do you, what would you need from me as a director and from the companies that are asking you to do this, what would you need in order to be healthy doing this? <laughs> because you stand on stage naked and say I'm ugly and I'm stupid, that's going to take its toll, and it did on those two actors. So we worked really hard to make sure that they were, we were checking in with them and um, talking to them about where they were and take, t- taking care of them as humans through that process. But they both decided that the play was worth it to them as people to do. And it was interesting watching the impact that that sacrifice had on an audience and obviously, an audience of people that say the same things to themselves each day. And watching pe- two people say that and navigate that was deeply moving. And I think the, act- the actors knew that. But it was really hard. It was hard to ask, um, it was hard for them to agree, and it was hard to take care of them in that process. And I think and even now actually it was interesting because someone call, oh, it was another company called they wanted it um, melbourne i think wanted a production and i said i don't know i'd have to ask the actors and one of them actually said i don't want to go back into that place and so i was like okay fair enough we're not going we're not going to take the show
1: i'm not right. going to ask it
3: again and i don't necessarily want to do it with different actors so it, it does the conversation doesn't end with the show either it's that question of the impact in the person's life so it's complicated and I think mm. that the biggest thing is uh, making sure that, the, that it's there from the beginning in the scripts that go out um, or in the conversations about it and why, yeah. to what end, I think okay. is a real question.
0: Thank you. Um, there's a lot of younger actors here, students and recent grads and I think um, some of them would probably like to know a little bit about your process uh, for auditioning and how you cast. Um, do you have open auditions? Um, how, how can somebody get an audition at Belva?
1: We don't, um, we have done open auditions but not not in a kind of regular way. Uh, I have auditioned in the last two years about um, two, 250 actors. I like to do it, I mm-hmm. find it really useful, but at the same time uh, I think that auditioning is kind of like, you know, it's usually 20 minutes And that's really not um, often enough to to establish a proper relationship. Um, So, you know, it means that callbacks are often necessary. But actually, the more that we get to know people in many other ways other than auditioning, the better. So um, that means that we go and see every show. One person in the artistic and programming department, at least, will go and see every show that is on in Sydney at any one time. Occasionally we don't get there, but that's a commitment that we make. So we do see everything that happens between us. Um, uh, which means that we get to know people outside of just the, the, um, the rehearsal, uh, the audition process. I mean, we don't have a casting department. John Woodland is our artistic um, administrator and John's job is to do the contracting and, and liaise with agents and often with um, artists to get in touch. But we also welcome anyone to write to anyone at the company. Our email addresses are all on the website. Um, and w- it's a combination of letters of getting in touch, getting your agent to get in touch with John and ask what roles are still going. Um, of course there's a certain amount of stuff that gets cast when, um, when we're putting a season together because you can't commit to a show unless you know that you've got the right people for it. That's, that's, um, that's inevitable. But I would say about a third to a half of the season remains uncast at the point that we launch normally. Um, Uh, And, of course, of that third to half, not all of the roles are for younger actors. Do you know what I mean? Like, there'll be a mix of all sorts of things. Um, Like most things at Belvoir, it's quite loose. It's quite ad hoc. Mm -hmm. We've just spent the last couple of months as well um, workshopping with uh, artists who we don't really know for uh, from between an hour to four hours. And in that time, I've gotten to know about 120 actors who I didn't know Mm -hmm. four months ago. And I find that process really interesting because it's not it's not about winning a role, it's not about the nervousness of coming and having to perform, it's just about working with people and getting to know them. So I find that uh, quite useful as well.
0: Okay. Yeah. Kip, um, you obviously have actors and directors that you know and love and trust, and how, how do you manage to balance you know, giving new people a go with your, <laughs> with your desire to cast people that are people that are mates, people that you know will deliver, people that you enjoy working with?
2: Yeah, I don't think I've ever gone into a rehearsal room without you know, at least a third of that cast being actors who I've never worked with before. So I actually love the energy of having new people to work with um, and, and cracking that chemistry with those actors, but I also love working with people repeatedly and having that, that shorthand. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of it is about going and seeing work. I mean, as Eamon pointed to, there's the, you can get a lot. You can get a lot from an audition, but also twenty minutes is not a huge amount of time to get somebody's measure. And I often lament um, when I've seen a, a young actor or, or a young director do phenomenal work at, at drama school, and then you really want to go and see their first indie show, or you really want to go and see them in that you know tiny thing that they've made in a kitchen, and and it never happens. You know they're holding out for the, the big opportunity yeah. to come, <laughs> and so many of the young people who, who I've absorbed into my work and, and who are young directors who I've gotten to know over the years are people who have by hook or by crook gone out and made work or, or done anything to get a role in that indie show because we, we come and see them. yeah um, And it, sitting in a, in a space for an hour and a half and watching somebody work is such an in-depth way to come to understand that artist as opposed to the, the sort of nervousness of a 20, 10 minute audition.
0: yeah. Um, Lee, when you, um, if you're a young actor, you're starting out and you want to be employable, um, from the point of view of a director, would there be various qualities um, that you would like to see in a, in a young actor, in the, either in the audition room or in the rehearsal room? Are there actors you would avoid even if they're the best person for the role because of their temperament?
1: Not particular (laughs)
2: actors.
0: (laughs) I'll leave the room if
2: you
0: want for a minute. Oh, look.
3: Look, I have learned in the last few years that there are people who are really great with new work and some people surprisingly don't like it because it's a shifting sand. A new script is a shifting sand. It's not like an mm. Arthur Miller where the script is there and you know the script is good and it's the question is, are you throwing yourself up against a huge tradition and how good are you in relation to that? It's actually like the entire scene can disappear and a new, whole new thought can come in in week three. And how, how do, there are some people who are excited by that and some people who actually don't like it. Mm. So I try to get a feel for people that genuinely... And that's directors and actors who genuinely like... The, I find it exciting, yeah. <laughs> I'm a little addicted to the new work, but, um, but I try not to put people in who I worry don't like it, yeah. because I don't, it's a miserable place to work in unless if you're not excited by it, if you, if you need more, and it, it depends on the, the, the phase that people are in in their life as well, sometimes you need something a little bit more solid and sometimes you're actually up for the ride. Uh, so I work in an extreme sport. <laughs> so I, I think there's a certain courage, <laughs> and a certain selflessness in new work, uh, giving over to the writer and the uncertainty of the writer, and committing all of your talent to supporting an unknown, is uh, is a particular courage, and when. I find it uh, my gratitude to established actors who are willing to put their Mm -hmm. name to new plays knows no bounds. Mm -hmm. Because committing our best talent to our newest work is something that is incredibly important to me. Mm -hmm. And I I think that the confidence that an audience will have when there's an actor that they know and love who is fronting a new work, they'll go, oh, if they think it's good, then I'm going to, well, you know, masquerade. People came to see it because you were, they were like, if, it's, if she's in it, then it must be okay. And you do, actors do vouch for, yeah, but they vouch for, the, for new work in ways that I can't or the company can't. It's the, oh, that amazing audience connection to actor and the trust of an actor. Mm. So, um, so courage, I think, is the biggest thing for mm. me in new, in new work and a certain amount of selflessness. And honestly, at Griffin, willingness to be in that dressing room. <laughs> no, because it's small. It's small, and you know you get to know those people really well. So there's so good a good personal hygiene. Good, good personal hygiene. You,
0: you joke. But yes. I, I'm not joking. <laughs> I'm, con- um, I'm conscious that we need to hand over to questions in a minute, but I have one more. Can I just say my question? I answer, like, my
1: answer to that question because that's really interesting. I'm sorry. No, no. I, I Actually, I had to start divvying it up. No, I agree. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, irrationality. Huh. Um, curiosity, yeah. being prepared to get lost and to fuck it up and to throw it all away, they're the best things. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Good. I'll see you next week. Um, <laughs> or will I? Uh, <laughs> last, last question from me before we hand over, because um, I think this is an important one. It's a big one, so try and be brief if you can. Um, there was a perceived lack of criticism from cultural leaders to the recent uh, of cultural leaders to the recent cuts in arts funding, and some felt that arts leaders were too fearful to criticise the cuts in case they were in the firing line. What do you think is the is an arts leader's job? Kip.
2: Well, if I'd been an artistic director at the time. No, I'm joking. Um, look, I think the, the greatest thing that came out of, of that particular period in, in our funding history mm. is that all the companies came together and spoke together. Now, I, I think we can debate the, the timeline on that, but I think the actual outcome of the I Stand With The Arts campaign, which was across the board absorbed and um, supported by all companies, was a phenomenal outcome and actually lays the blueprint for the future, and that's mine. Thank you. Answer. I think
1: that's good. Yeah. I, I would say that, um, like Kip, I was not—I had been appointed at that point, but I was not the artistic director. I there was. It's very clear that there were a set of decisions that were made for reasons that remain opaque to many, many people at a very, very high level across the entire country, and that that seems to suggest a degree of of. Um, coercion or collaboration that that I think was um, peculiar, and that was enforced upon a lot of people, and I think that that was a terrible mistake, and I think that it shouldn't have happened. But I also think that there was a lot of work that happened behind the scenes, and I think that work was effective, and it did give rise to what Kip talked about, which I think um, I agree is a terrific thing. And there certainly has been, I feel like, a kind of renewed sense of shared purpose and, and a discussion amongst artistic directors and, and executive directors. But, but I would have to look, I would have to say that, that I do think there has been a, a shift which is related to government pulling back from any notion of the public good over a decade. And I mean, both sides of government in this, in this case and that pulling back from any notion of a public good has meant that the arts are increasingly reliant upon the private as opposed to the public good and that that private good is fiercely self-protective. That's
0: all we've got time for tonight but please thank again Kip, Lee and <laughs> amy Belvoir, for the use of the theatre, and thank you to Equity
2: Foundation.
0: (laughs) Media Super is the principal sponsor of the Equity Foundation. For more information about the work of the Foundation, visit equityfoundation.org.au
2: or follow Australian Actors' Equity on Facebook and Twitter.